Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. What was the kitten's favorite 80s song? What? Careless Whiskers. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from George Elbricht and Ido Arad from the band Violins. That'll help break the ice. And help induce groans, too. All the above. Yeah. <laughs> Their new album, True, comes out next week. Later, we'll speak with pop singer Santi Gold about her new album, Master of My Make-Believe. Also coming up, we've got Time Magazine's resident humorist Joel Stein here to answer your etiquette questions. We hear a new tune from Passion Pit. We have a remembrance of Maurice Sendak by a modern master of kids' illustration. And writer Gideon Lewis Krauss schools us on his pilgrimages. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these stories. Voters in France electing their first socialist president in almost two decades. The CIA has thwarted another terror plot. I think same-sex couples should be able to get married. Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Rehan Harmansi. She is the culture editor for The Bay Citizen in San Francisco. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about how researchers started um, mapping the brains of dogs so we can finally know <laughs> what they're thinking. So it's um, just like a big plate of food, I think. There's just a picture <laughs> I know. of food. Wagging tails. What, so what is this? How does it work? So researchers put two dogs in an fMRI tube. Um, that is advanced brain imaging, which they'd never done before because they didn't think dogs could be trained to sit still inside one of the fMRI tubes. And then when these researchers read about dogs being part of the Osama bin Laden kill mission. They were like, hey, we can throw a dog out of a helicopter. We can put them in an fMRI tube. But are we really going to get accurate readings of what dogs are thinking when we put them in an fMRI tube? I think mostly what they're going to be thinking about is why am I in an fMRI tube? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so in general, fMRI imaging, I think sometimes the headlines overdo what people can actually tell from the images. But so far, they've basically come up with with the non-shocking fact that when you teach a dog to respond to a food stimulus, it stimulates the part of the brain that is about pleasure. Wow. So these scientists, who I'm guessing are pretty smart, they learned mm. how to make dogs sit by reading the newspaper. <laughs> and now they've discovered that dogs respond to food. That's science, you guys. Next stop, Jupiter. <laughs> <laughs> but they do have high hopes for future studies that can maybe tell us a little bit more about dog brain activity. I'm sure. I actually am kind of fascinated to see if they just tolerate us because we give them food or do they really think we're awesome? I kind of want to know. <laughs> yeah, we could put you in front of the dog and see what part of the dog's brain gets activated. Yeah. We just designed to study you guys. <laughs> Rehan Armancy, thanks for the small talk. Thank you. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our pre-dinner history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1849, New York City theatergoers showed just how much they disliked a production of Macbeth. And not by writing a few angry letters to the Times, either. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. In the 1840s, the rivalry between actors William McCready and Edwin Forrest turned, well, dramatic. They were considered two of the best actors around. Both had huge success starring in Shakespeare plays. But McCready was British, 
classically trained and subtle, while Forrest was America's first homegrown Shakespeare star, self-taught and brassy. At first, the two were pals, but that changed when a London audience hissed at Forrest during a performance of King Lear. Forrest blamed a jealous MacReady for hiring the hissers. So he went to see MacReady play Hamlet and hissed at him. And when MacReady toured the U.S., Forrest followed him around, playing his own shows in every city on the tour, just to draw away his rival's audience. To New Yorkers, this wasn't some silly squabble. It was symbolic. See, working-class nativists in the city championed anything made in America, like Forrest. They resented the upper class and their love of things British, like MacReady. So when the two actors staged competing productions of Macbeth in New York, everyone expected trouble. They got it. On MacReady's opening night, nativists in the balcony pelted him with shoes and rotten eggs. They were so loud, he had to mime his lines. And at the next performance, over 10,000 protesters showed up, bombarded the theater with stones, and tried to set it on fire. The state militia was called. Shots were fired. When the smoke cleared, dozens were dead and more injured. It was a clear illustration of the growing class divide in America, and probably the only performance of Macbeth with more blood offstage than on. So that was the history lesson, and after that, I'm going to need a drink. I'm here with Frank Kayafa. He is the bar manager at the Vault at Faf's, which is on Broadway, five blocks away from where the riots took place. Frank, you seem like you're too young to have been there for the riot. Yes, I have. So, Frank, you heard the history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make? Well, in Victorian England, cobblers were very popular. A cobbler. So that was a sort of cocktail. I think of it as like a, a dessert or, or a sweet. Uh, no, it's a wine-based cocktail, usually sherry or port with just some fruit and sugar. Although it was an American drink invented here, cobblers were popular there as well. So this is actually an interesting synthesis of the two cultures that were rioting at the time. Right, exactly at the time. All right, so uh, what are the ingredients in, in your cobbler? Start this recipe with cubed white peaches or whatever peaches in season. So I'm surprised you're not using rotten tomatoes since that's... Yeah, right. and rotten eggs. Okay, uh, first we're going to use two and a quarter ounces of Hudson Four Green Bourbon. Okay. An ounce of Bordeaux, which the English call claret. And which the Americans wouldn't call anything at all. Right. They didn't drink wine as good as this, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. We have some sugar and a couple of dashes of house-made peach bitters. All right. Some ice. Take a healthy amount of mint. We slap it against our hands to wake it up. Is that a New York thing? Like, what's the matter with you? No, <laughs> but it could be. All right, so we wake up the mint, stick it in there. And then we top it with powdered sugar. All right, I'm going to go for it. Oh, man, that is fantastic. If, you know, we, this story is about a fight that happened at the theater, but have you actually had to break up fights in your time behind a bar? More than a few, and in a lot of different ways. What is the most common fight over here? Well, th today, they fight over sports teams. So who would be the nativists, the Yankees or the Mets? My team? I'm a Mets fan, but uh, I'm not ready to throw down over it. 
So, Rico, Frank served the drink in this heavy glass goblet called a Hawthorne House glass. Interesting. It's what they used to use, apparently. Right. So the drink looked just as it would have back in 1850, hmm. except for the ice, because apparently, ice. apparently chipped ice was not used in bars until a few years later. Oh, wow. That's yes. actually good, because they probably just would have used it to break stuff. They could have chilled the rotten tomatoes. No. Folks, <laughs> you can find all our drink recipes at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. Our guest today is Kristen Romy. She's one of the world's top archaeological explorers. She is also a consultant for a new display in Times Square's Discovery Museum of a few of China's terracotta warriors. These are the 2,000-year-old statues some farmers found in the 1970s while they were digging a well. Kristen's here with a list of discoveries she'd like to stumble upon. Hi, I'm Kristen Romy, and I'm the curatorial consultant for Terracotta Warriors in New York City. The moment of discovery is what keeps you going through all of the years of lousy salaries and living in the middle of nowhere, you know, no showers, no electricity. And then when you get back to civilization, you're pouring through these old dusty books. And that all leads up to that one moment where you're just like, oh, my gosh, it's in front of me. And I may have been the first person in 2000 years to see this. It's a thrill. So here's a list of a few things that we know are out there, but that we haven't discovered yet. The top of my list, I would say, would be Genghis Khan's tomb. There's actually an area in Mongolia that's kind of considered off-limits because its burial site may be somewhere there. There's always the idea of spectacular treasure when you find somebody as important as Genghis Khan. But the thing about finding tombs is that we have this consciousness that's loomed so large for hundreds or thousands of years about people like Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great. We have never found Alexander the Great's tomb either, though we know it's in Egypt. Finding these human remains that are associated with a great player in world history has always got a really sexy element to it. Archaeologists have definitely been looking for it, but so far, we haven't turned up anything. The problem is we don't have the ideal tool which really lets us look underground. We have things that give you an idea where density changes, but we don't have the magic camera that allows us to peer underneath the top layer of soil and see what's there. That would make life a lot easier. Another thing on my list actually would be a Minoan shipwreck. And I'm a little biased towards this because my background is actually underwater archaeology. I mean, we know the Minoans, they were this powerful, legendary culture, you know, 3,500 years ago. And they ruled the seas. They ruled the Mediterranean, and we have beautiful paintings and artwork from them depicting their gorgeous ships, and they would have huge processions of these ships. And we have not found one to date. We have no idea how they built their ships. And once we understand something as benign as how a ship is built, it tells you so much more about how their economy worked, how their government worked, and how they communicated with other cultures. Over my career, I've dove on many shipwrecks and searched for a lot of shipwrecks. I've got to tell you, there's nothing like jumping off the dock into the deep blue sea and just dropping like a bullet through the water. And then about 100 feet down, all of a sudden, this enormous shipwreck just appears right in front of you. It's an experience I'm going to take with me to my deathbed, (laughs) i got to say. 
Another thing on my list, well, of course, is the tomb of China's first emperor. Now, the terracotta warriors protect China's first emperor. And we know where his tomb is. You have this enormous mound rising up, and that marks the tomb of the first emperor. Nobody's ever been in the tomb. The main reason, and I really got to applaud the Chinese government for this, is that we don't have the technology yet to do it properly. By nature, archaeology is a destructive process. We go in and we take things apart. And I was talking to some Chinese archaeologists who were like, yeah, you know, we've opened up tombs where there were beautiful feathers, fantastic stuff like that. And by the time you pick up your camera to take a photo, they're gone. The minute that they're exposed to air and sunlight, they just turn to dust. 3,000 years from now, some archaeologists are going to stumble upon Vegas and be absolutely confused. Roller coasters, you know, pyramids, skyscrapers. They would have assumed that it was a huge seat of political and military power. The guest list from archaeologist Kristen Romy. And Brendan, I kind of like the thought of future academics trying to decipher the meaning of a roulette wheel. Totally, yeah, this totally. Disc cool. of numbers. Or Don Rickles. You know, <laughs> they used to pay this man $100 to have him insult them. What will they think of us? All right, folks, we're going to take a break. Coming up, pop musician Santi Gold tells us the headline she hates. When the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, in honor of crawfish season, we head to New Orleans and eat some of those Bayou treats. Mm. And later, illustrator Brian Selznick, the man who created Hugo, remembers Maurice Sendak. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's musician Santi Gold. Her debut album was critically acclaimed when it came out four years ago. Mm. Since then, she's toured with the likes of Bjork and the Beastie Boys. Now she's finally released a follow-up album, and it's called Master of My Make-Believe. She's known for her smart, beat-driven pop music and for her forward-thinking fashion. Indeed. During the interview, she wore a pink leather jacket with little Keith Haring cartoon figures all over it. Rockstar. You might, <laughs> you might actually hear it during the interview. Yeah, it squeaks a little. Uh, before she was a singer, though, she was a talent scout. Mm. So I asked her what she'd say if she scouted herself. I'd be like, oh, my God, there's this girl, and she's amazing. You can't even describe it. <laughs> you have to come see it. <laughs> all I'd right. be like... I mean, come on, I can't really toot my own horn in that way. <laughs> then maybe just genre-wise, how would you describe it? I call my music collage music. Hmm. I don't know if I would describe it as an outsider like that, but I describe it like that because that's the process of making the music for me. It's, it's really just taking bits and pieces from all over the place and piecing them together in a special way, which is exactly how I make collages. So you've been playing music for a long time. You started out kind of in a punk band. Yeah, there was this, uh, it was kind of a post-punk new wave band called Stift. And that's not the typical resume for a pop artist. How did you find yourself kind of where you are now in music? I think it just happened. I was, I, my goal was never even to be a performer. I mean, 
I never wanted to sing in public. And I remember I got a solo at school when I was 15 that I did not want. And the teacher made me do it and it was awful. And I just, I was so nervous. I didn't want to do it. And my friends were laughing at me. And I was just like, I never want to sing in public again. (laughs) (laughs) And I really didn't for a long time. And then I started writing songs. So I guess I, I loved music, but I wanted to be... I wanted to be the owner of a record company. In college, you double majored, if I'm correct, in music and African-American studies, right, at Wesleyan? Yes. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. how, if at all, that education has come into play. Well, the great thing about Wesleyan is that there's no real core curriculum, so they let me design my major. So you designed a a major in being a superstar? (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) But I was really into ethnomusicology, like Mm -hmm. how music and culture went together, and the one thing that they did make you do is is have a well-rounded education. So they made you take everything from experimental music, uh, like Philip Glass and Alvin Lucia and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. then we had to take classical. And then for my instrument, I chose hand drums. <laughs> <laughs> so I was studying West African and Cuban and Haitian drumming and drumming for the dance classes. And I think that that is something that's definitely influenced the way that I write. Because even my vocal melodies are very rhythmic and I write to the bass and the drums, and it's all about the rhythmic relationships, you know? Well, you can definitely hear that on a lot of your songs, uh, including your popular tune, L.E.S. Artiste. I have a question about the chorus of that song, actually. I can say I hope it will be worth what I give up. Mm-hmm. I wonder, what, if anything, have you given up to succeed? Oh, my gosh. Uh, peace of mind. <laughs> um, free time. Uh, having a normal schedule in any way. Days off. I mean, I work I work with no days off for about, like, I can go four months without a day off. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> I mean, there's so many things. It's such a hard job. I know that I know that nobody really wants to hear that. Like, people are always like, oh, yeah, so sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> but it is really challenging, the amount of pressure. I mean, it's just, it's a grind. It's a grind. And, it, and especially trying to do something that's not exactly mainstream it's like so much more work and so much more challenging but you got to keep up keep up the appearance like you like you can hang with your peers you know but everything is DIY and it's always trying to make something out of nothing I was going to say that for you in particular I read a quote in an interview you gave where you said I think it's a really strange time for music right now because I feel like the lane has become so narrow for what we consider pop music and what's playable on the radio I'm hoping to knock down the walls and broaden the lane a little bit um, yeah. you, you do try to do something different and it probably is a lot more work. Why even bother? I mean, you're obviously a, a very smart person. Why not just program the hooks that people want to hear and, uh, and exactly. not worry about that? That ties back into the line. I hope it's worth what I give up <laughs> because <laughs> I guess I'm not really in it to be, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like everybody would like to make money and be able to you know live a nice life and pay for things that they want. But that's not why I'm an artist. I'm not doing it just to make money or to be famous. And the fame thing, I definitely am not doing it for that because that part I'm not even that comfortable with anyway. (laughs) But I think the whole thing for me is about making art. And if I'm not doing something that I feel is creative and meaningful, then I just may as well do something else. You know, I'm not going to go out and make a song that sounds like everything just so I can get on the radio 
that takes the, the, the point out of it. And even if I have ever tried to do that for myself, it will get shut down immediately by my sensor, my my, <laughs> yeah. my integrity sensor. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you could always, you could maybe get a job teaching music back at Wesleyan where you get paid and you have a lot of time <laughs> off. Trust me, I've thought about doing all kinds of stuff. This week especially, I'm like, what else could I do? <laughs> Did anything really, come to I mind? I really think about this all the time. But I think no matter what, I will always make music. Okay, well, we have two standard questions that we ask each of our guests. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Okay, um, tired of being asked about whether I was dissing Lady Gaga or like, Katy Perry in my Big Mouth video. <laughs> Can you explain that? I had a video, this is a video for my song Big Mouth, yeah. which it was an animated video. And really, you're like sneakily asking me the question by asking me <laughs> You this figured question, it out. <laughs> which is so annoying. And I knew it. And that's why I was trying not to answer the question. But then you're just still waiting for the answer. This is the genius of the question. <laughs> yeah. So I had this video where a tiger eats a mermaid. And to me, it was a tiger eating a mermaid. Because I'm not up on everything that Lady Gaga's ever worn and done. And uh-huh. to all her fans, my tiger ate Lady Gaga. And it was a big <laughs> diss to Lady Gaga, which it wasn't. All right. Well, the second thing we ask of our guest is tell us something we don't know, something about you or the world at large, something you haven't talked about in an interview before. Well, I can tell you that I love daytime activities. <laughs> um, Wait, what, do you, what I are daytime I hate going out at night, really, but I love, like, trips to great adventure or, like, hiking or, I don't know, anything fun in the daylight. That's my thing. How about that? So I'm assuming for you, daylight activities must be pretty hard since you're always on tour. See, that's the thing, though. This is a hard question to to answer because if I'm at home in Brooklyn, considering mm-hmm. the fact that I'm never home in Brooklyn. My uh-huh. favorite daytime activity is laying on the couch with my dog and my husband watching <laughs> television. <laughs> so your world's inverse. So there are people all over the world laying on their couch with their dog and their husband wishing they were you, and you are looking at them wishing you were them. Oh, yes. That's exactly. <laughs> Sometimes when I'm walking down the street, I see people in their like, work clothes, and I wish I was them. <laughs> I'm like, I wish I had a nine-to-five job. Maybe that's, that's, maybe that's the answer to your question. That's the secret thing. Well, you know what? If you ever want to switch, talk to me. Okay, I will. Wow, so what a cool and candid person. Right? Yeah, but I think she might be idealizing the nine-to-five job, you know? It's tough out here in the real world. I yeah. Think. Like, we know the real world. We interview interesting people and taste free cocktails all day. Precisely. It's brutal. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's terribly all right. difficult. Uh, folks, our work hours are longer than 9 to 5. Indeed. Though that's mainly because we're messing around on Facebook. <laughs> you can find us there at facebook.com slash dinnerpartydownload. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, as you know, it is crawfish season, right? I do know, only because you told me. Yeah, <laughs> because it's, it admittedly is not something most of the country is really aware of. That's but true. But down in Louisiana, where more than 90% of these little lobstery crustaceans are harvested, this is a big deal because it means everyone right now is throwing crawfish boils. They throwing called. crawfish boils. Yes. Sounds like a medieval curse. <laughs> it involves <laughs> boiling crawfish. Oh, okay. 
And crawfish boils are to Louisiana what barbecues are to other states. These are backyard parties with lots of beer and big sort of primal piles of food cooked over fire. I've been to one before, and it was great. So when I was down in New Orleans last week, I took a recorder along and asked one backyard chef how a boil is done. My name is Trooper Bruce. We are in mid-city New Orleans, Louisiana. I had a crawfish boil during Jazz Fest. It happens a lot around this time of year. It's crawfish season, which is when the crawfish are have grown to adulthood. They're, uh, they're either in the rivers they catch them, or there's a lot of pond crawfish. I believe we're cooking pond crawfish. You know what the difference between the two of them is? River crawfish are generally fatter because they're grown in the wilds. Pond crawfish are cheaper because they're easier to harvest. You went for the latter. Right, we went for the cheaper crawfish. Is there a flavor difference, do you find? Not much. Uh, actually, pond crawfish will mature earlier in the season. The shells get harder, and it's harder to permeate the shell with seasoning. You know a lot about crawfish for a guy who says that he's not a chef. How did you find out all this stuff? My father got me into boiling crawfish. It was something that I was always interested in. And when I turned 25, he gave me a crawfish pot and the whole setup. And it was something that I started to do and, and became proficient at. I always say I'm good at three things. I can parallel park, I can crawfish, and there's one other thing that not too many people will find out. <laughs> By the way, this crawfish pot, for those who have never seen one, it is, it is not a small pot. This thing, you could like house a family inside of this thing. How big a pot is that? It's a 100-quart pot you boil in. And people even have rigs that will do three and four sacks of crawfish for big parties and events that they just crank them out, the professionals. All right, so what is your process? I'm sure every chef has a different way of doing this, but what is your process? It starts the same as most. You, you fill the pot up with just hose water. You add your seasoning. I choose... Louisiana seasoning. There are many different brands of seasoning. Some people make their own. I don't have the time. Louisiana is a brand. Louisiana is a brand. So you start to boil your water and you add your hard vegetables and the, the things that you would want to season with. Hard vegetables being potatoes, people like artichoke hearts. I throw my onions and garlic in there really early because crawfish in general without any seasoning are really bad. They really are just sort of vessels for this seasoning. So you add those vegetables and you bring that to a rolling boil. Then you put your crawfish in. And they're live. They're live when you, when you put them in. You bring it back up to a rolling boil and you let it roll for about five minutes. And then cut it off and they start to soak. And that's when they really get all their, their seasoning. The one secret I have, I'll add fresh lemons, squeezed lemons, and frozen lemonade concentrate. Wow, frozen lemonade. That's pretty cool. Um, two things it does to the boil. One, it adds some sweetness and when they start to soak, they're hot and their shells have expanded. When you add that frozen lemonade, that's the first thing that hits the crawfish that's cold. So it starts the contraction process and it really infuses the crawfish with that, with that flavor. You let them soak until they sink and then you dump them on a table and eat. Yeah, and the eating process is like pretty barbaric looking, which is the best part. It's just like a lot of ripping little animals apart. Yeah, you rip it apart, suck the juice out the head, pinch your tail, get the meat out. It's, it's fantastic. There's sausage in there, corn, and it's actually, I have to go and shut the, uh, the propane off because they've been boiling for about four or five minutes now and we're going to start to soak. So if you want to... Yeah, sure. You were stirring this with an enormous spatula thing. Is this like a special crawfish stirrer? It's a crawfish paddle, what we call it. It's a technical term. You could use that to like pilot a canoe. And it's good, yeah, it's good for like spankings. Nice. There's, I do actually see there's tons of, it looks like lemon in there. A lot of lemon in there. We put turnips in this one, although I don't know how that's going to turn out. Some squash. You can really throw anything in there, and all it's going to do is taste like crawfish boil, and that's not a bad thing. All right, here comes the pot. 
so big it must be borne by two men. It is full of crawfish and vegetables. No, we're good. Oh man, it looks delicious. There, there's no cheer of like happiness. There's just greedy eating. <laughs> I see crawfish, entire heads of garlic. Just peel them out and squeeze them in your mouth. Amazing. Oh you can God. use them later on to do other stuff, like dip bread in it. or. Come on, and then the artichokes right here are fabulous because they soak up a lot of the flavor as well. This one's surprising because it doesn't have um, sausage. It usually has sausage, but... This is a little bit more vegetarian friendly, although the mounds and mounds of uh, formerly live crawfish sort of negates that. Absolutely. All right, introduce yourself. Okay, I'm Josh Burns. And you're partaking of the crawfish. Now, usually one eats the tail like a tiny lobster. There are those who feel that there is more to the crawfish, which is? The head. I, that seems disgusting to me. What am I missing by not eating the head of the crawfish? There's a whole bunch of flavor in there. There's a little bit of fat. There's a little bit of organ meat. You, you shouldn't be afraid of organ meat. All right, let me, let me hear this occur. It sounds like you're blowing up a balloon. <laughs> but we're doing inhaling instead of exhaling. It's totally delicious. It's it's more of a the brine than anything. I mean, and it's just got a little bit of kick to it and just tastes good. All right, I'm going to try one of these things. Here we go. It's like basically a, a head with a whole bunch of tentacles attached. It's very disgusting looking. Oh, that's delicious. Wow, it's spicy. Congratulations, you're now New Orleans local. <laughs> Is that all it takes? That's all it takes. Congratulations. Do I have, do I have to pay taxes now? Crawfish. And Brendan, a couple of notes. Note we, one, that last bit was kind of disgusting. <laughs> disgustingly tasty. Also, uh, no one is saying that this is the only way to do a crawfish boil. Okay. okay. For, for instance, some people insist that the first step is actually to immerse the crawfish for many hours in fresh water to purge all the muck out of their systems. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is not sounding any more appetizing to me. That's because you're not a New Orleans local like I am now. Sweet meat look. Fresh and ready to all right, on a far less festive note, earlier this week, as most people are by now aware, Maurice Sendak passed away. Yes, sadly. The New York Times called him, quote, the most important children's book artist of the 20th century. And one of his biggest fans was Brian Selznick. He is the award-winning author and illustrator of the children's book The Invention of Hugo Cabret, which went on to become Martin Scorsese's Oscar-winning movie Hugo. Last year, Selznick told us his list of great illustrated books, and his favorite one was pretty obvious. Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are, the sort of the, the perfect and most beautiful picture book ever made. The first time I remember reading Where the Wild Things Are was when I was working at Eeyore's Books for Children. Of course, I knew about it because everybody knows about Where the Wild Things Are, but I think a lot of people think they know it because it's so famous. That's why I think it's really important to go back and actually look at what Maurice Sendak was doing with the pictures, because that's what's really interesting to me, is why, why do we use pictures? Why do we have an illustrated book? What can pictures do in a book that text can't? 
And looking at someone like Maurice Sendak can really inform your understanding of how pictures can be used to move a narrative forward. In the story, the pictures start off very small on the page. As you turn the pages, they grow until the wild rumpus uh, has no room left for language. And it's the pictures themselves that have taken over the pages. Sendak is, is the, the master of that. Writer-illustrator Brian Selznick, remembering the work of writer-illustrator Maurice Sendak, who just passed away this week. And that came from a conversation we taped with Selznick last year. All right. After a break, our wild rumpus continues with Gideon Lewis Krauss, mm-hmm. author of a new book about pilgrimages. Plus, Time Magazine's gonzo humorist Joel Stein gives us manly etiquette tips. When the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear a new song from the band Passion Pit. And coming up, writer Gideon Lewis Krauss talks about the appeal of pilgrimages. In medieval times, the only chance you ever had to leave the confines of your terrible, claustrophobic little peasant village was to go on a religious pilgrimage. But before we go there, it is time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is Joel Stein. He's a humor columnist for Time magazine, and his new book comes out this week. It's called Man Made, A Stupid Quest for Masculinity. Joel, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. This this place could use some masculinity. Yeah. Well, that's what I was wow. going to say. Your book is about your effort to become more of a man so you can be a better role model for your, your son. And you do all this macho stuff, like you go through marine basic training. Um, why didn't you visit public radio where we are brimming with testosterone? Yeah. I had no idea there were so many mugs filled with tea here. Oh, I would have been here earlier. <laughs> yeah, don't drink too much of that or you'll just start a brawl. I mean, it, that's basically what it is around here. It's just like guys brawling. Just low caffeine fueled <laughs> brawls. You should see the damage I can do with these knitting needles. Uh, so, Joel, what did you learn about masculinity? I learned that it's dying. There's there's fewer kids going to Boy Scouts. There's hunting and fishing is down. And you know, I thought that would be a good thing for people like us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I think we need to all get a little more masculine. Really? Yeah, I think we're missing some kind of self-reliance, some kind of code of conduct. I think it's all too mushy out there. But Joel, if you raise your kid to be too much of a man, he's going to be more of a man than you, and that could he could end up hurting you. Oh, he's three years old. He's already more of a man than me. <laughs> because of what you learned in this book? No, it's partly genetics. I was just born this way, and he was born a kid who's interested in trucks. Yeah. Well, we told our audience that we were going to have a manly man on, and they immediately guessed it was you, strangely enough. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> the books worked. So there are a few manly questions sprinkled in here. I believe Rico is the first one. I do. This is from Mark in Paris, the manly, manly Paris, city. Texas, of... I hope. <laughs> no. Yeah. no. No, I think it's Paris, France. It's the city uh, with the big phallic tower in the middle. Here's what Mark asks. Is it unmanly to cry at sad movies or at romantic scenes in movies? It's not unmanly to cry at movies. It's unmanly to go to romantic movies. <laughs> Is he talking about, like, Jennifer Aniston movies? I I think... He shouldn't be there. I think... No, he says sad movies specifically. Sad movies? Rem- well, it depends. We, if we define sad movies as movies about father and son relationships, uh. acceptable to cry. Movies about okay. sports, acceptable to cry. Sure. Movies <laughs> where uh, there are dogs, 
acceptable to cry. And that's it. Those are the what, only three. Why movies with dogs? Why is that manly? Because you're not allowed to express your emotions about other people. Oh, unless <laughs> but, they're your sports teammate. Yeah, so dogs are okay. Like any scene where they have to put the dog down, you're allowed to cry. What about cat movies? <laughs> no, God, you shouldn't be seeing a cat movie. Really? Yeah. Puss in Boots is not? This no, Antonio no. Banderas is the voice of Puss. No, they see they're trying to get trick guys in with Antonio Banderas. <laughs> wow. I liked how Rico was trying to convince you. He's like, but Antonio Banderas was the voice of Puss. I don't think men are supposed to be excited about Antonio Banderas. <laughs> I mean, certain men can, and that's fine, but even those men. Yeah. Should not be seeing Puss in Boots. Yeah. Obviously. I, I have to, I, actually, I think this is a good point to interject this question. Why do we still think of certain things as manly dogs, etc.? I know plenty of women who are like the biggest dog fanatics that I know. Or I know women that are much bigger sports fans than their husbands who are huge sports fans. Yeah, no, it's acceptable for women to do guy stuff. But, mm. they're, but they're doing guy stuff. I don't think it works the other way. Guys doing lady stuff? Yeah. Downton Abbey. <laughs> we watch that. Are you tweeting a lot about Downton Abbey? I actually do tweet about Downton Abbey. Do you tweet more than um, Pat Oswalt about Downton Abbey? I don't know. Does oh, my God. That? He has written more about Downton Abbey than the writers of Downton Abbey. <laughs> it is ins- he, it's insane. Is it manly or unmanly? Anything Pat Oswalt does is not manly. Uh, okay. Yeah, oh. by definite. Except the scotch. He does love the scotch. Like the drinking of scotch? The drinking of scotch. I'm sure okay. he's fine with the Scottish people, too. Scotch is manly? Oh, come on. That's the manliest. Yeah, okay. for sure. I sweat scotch. <laughs> Maybe we should ask a second question. Yes. This comes from Max in Salt Lake City, Utah. Having lost a lot of my hair at the age of 20, I tend to wear hats on a regular basis. Sure. Not baseball caps or beanies, but a large selection of fedoras, homborgs, and trilbies. I was wondering, is it still rude to keep these hats on during a nice dinner? That's an excellent, I think, a question. I like that he's given this some thought. I like that it's plural, so if he's wearing three hats at once, (laughs) I think that's okay. Yeah, I I say take off one. I think it's Um, totally fine, right? In this day and age, leave your hat on? No. 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 Joel. All these guys seem to have hats on all the time now, the hipster. I think you can wear a hat at a restaurant if you're a woman, but you can't wear a hat at a restaurant if you're a man. It's just interesting. But I didn't realize until I moved to California years ago that a hat actually serves a purpose is to keep the sun out of your eyes. And when you're inside a restaurant, that's no longer a problem. Huh. And that's also kind of unmanly, right, to do something that's impractical. It's also unmanly to worry so much about your damn bald head. (laughs) Does Mark Messier worry about his bald head? Did Michael Jordan worry about his bald head? But they're tough men. Did Patton worry about his bald head? (laughs) No. Get rid of the fedoras. Get trilbies. Lose them all. Take off all three. Just shave your head. Fire them before they quit. Okay, All right. <laughs> take off the hat and shave your head. There you go, Max. We have, we have another question from Tim in Richfield, Minnesota. And this is a good question. If Joel can answer this one, I think this has been on a lot of people's minds. Is there prize money involved for me? No. No. This is okay. public radio. Yes. You give us money. You can have some of Rico's chamomile tea. Okay. <laughs> All right. Is it proper etiquette to walk around in the locker room naked wearing black dress socks? No. <laughs> oh, well, after a certain age, you're allowed to do whatever you want in that locker room, though. <laughs> if, you, if you're past 60, you can use the hairdryer on your uh, nether regions. <laughs> no. yeah. yeah, they do it. I That's see true. it all the time. That is the most manly thing is to not care. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> and dress socks, because they. I think the dress socks kind of kill the ankle hair. So if you take them off as an older guy, you've got that bald ankle weirdness. So yeah. best to leave them on. But well, what about younger guys for whom the rules still apply? I think the younger guys should not never see other younger guys naked. Really? Yeah. <laughs> really? I can put on my clothes under the towel. That's not so hard. Oh wait, that is not masculine. Yeah, that's really? what is that, Joel? You're right. You're right because I'm what? just learning. I'm still learning how to be a <laughs> you man. You were doing basic training with the Marines, and you're changing under your towel. What is that? The Marines yelled at me. I, there was a swim training thing, and in your book? Yeah. No, I just did it for fun. The swim training. They immediately start yelling at me. And, 
force me to take off my clothes. They just yell at you in your ear to take off your clothes, and then they walk you through these like shower jets from the wall, and then they make you, they bring you to a urinal before you get in the water, and they yell at you in your ear to pee, and they count down from 30, and then they hit zero, and I wasn't done, so I didn't know whether to stop or keep going. So that's manly. So if you're doing that. Yeah, they're not afraid of nudity is what I'm saying. So you weren't changing under your towel there. No, No. there was no towels. How did they feel about your water wings? Were those acceptable? (laughs) They were cool with the water wings. (laughs) What about your dress socks there in the Marines, in the shower? All right, here's here's our last question. All right. This is a question we ask of all of the folks in our uh, etiquette segment. What is the most memorable get-together you have ever been to? All right, shortly after I started working at Time Magazine, I got a call from the editor of Time asking me to come upstairs. So I get to his office, and Hunter S. Thompson and Johnny Depp. What? That's pretty manly, dude. Yes, gets manlier, because Hunter S. Thompson has written us an essay about the movie that's being made about his book. And right. he's forcing Johnny Depp to read it. And he keeps telling Johnny Depp that he's getting the rhythm wrong. And he's beating on the on the table like it's a drum. And he's smoking a bowl in the editor of Time's office. And the fear of violence is thick in the air. Because Hunter's got wow. some like assistant who he's clearly sleeping with, who's in her 20s, who a couple weeks later he'll shoot accidentally. Really? Yeah, but I felt like it could happen right then. Why did they call you in? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. They wanted me to witness this, I guess. They're like, we like... need to lower the testosterone in here. Bring Stein. Yeah. Well, you were man enough to uh, come on our show and deign to tell our audience how to behave, and for that, we salute you. Joel Stein of Time Magazine, thanks for coming on the show. It's the least I can do. Joel Stein's new book is called Man Made, A Stupid Quest for masculinity. And you know, I was actually encouraged that so many guys in our audience weren't afraid to ask for advice, you know? Oh yeah, that's right. Although they were public radio guys. That's true. A little different breed. And folks, if you have questions, don't be afraid to send them to us. Every week we pose them to guests who, even if they don't know the answer, will pretend they do. Email us your questions via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. This week our topic is pilgrimages. I have so much trouble saying that word for some reason. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot. I I do too. I actually kind of hate that word. I don't know why. It's like scrimmage. It's uh, the LG part that's hard. Yeah. Mm. And you have to have it by now. I mean, yeah. this is your thing. Yeah, no, but it's still, it's, I still trip <laughs> over that for some reason. So that voice you're hearing is our teacher, Gideon Lewis Krauss. His new book, A Sense of Direction, just came out this week. The book recounts three pilgrimages that Gideon went on, including the Camino de Santiago in Spain. Right. The Shikoku mm-hmm. pilgrimage the, in the Japan. The circuit of the 88 temples of the island of Shikoku in Japan. And the Rosh Hashan pilgrimage in the Ukraine. Right, exactly. And that's to a place called... Uman. Uman, all right. Yeah. So each of these pilgrimages are like pilgrimages in the, in the classic sense. Right. But the word pilgrimage is defined more broadly, yes. generally. Can you set us up and tell us the definition of a pilgrimage? Um, well, so the, the word pilgrim, actually, this is kind of interesting. It comes from the, fra- the Latin phrase per agrum, which means through the fields or beyond the fields. Hmm. And so what it meant was... It, somebody who had gone beyond the field, somebody who had left the hometown for whatever reason. Now, for at least in medieval times, the only chance you ever had to leave the confines of your terrible claustrophobic little peasant village yeah. was to go on a religious pilgrimage. So it's always been a kind of adventure flown under the banner of religious obligation. Well, I want to talk about each of them and maybe we can use that as a guide. Yeah. So let's start with the Camino del Santiago. 
in the ninth century, the bones of St. James the Greater were supposedly discovered under this hermitage in um, far northwestern Spain in Galicia in a city called Santiago de Compostela. And people started walking there from all over Europe, all over Christendom, um, with the idea, and this was shortly thereafter institutionalized in the church, that it was one of the three pilgrimages that granted you a full plenary indulgence for your sins so far. So, so like there was clean bill of health. Clean bill wise? of health so far. Okay. So it doesn't. Right. Do, it's no get out of jail free card in the <laughs> yeah. future. Yeah, yeah. But it just means that like you're you're cool to to date. It's not bad. Your ledger is balanced. Yeah, not bad. Uh, the the main takeaway thing I would say that I had from the Camino is that you form this really instantaneous sense of community with people. There's such a raw, immediate intimacy you you develop because you're walking, you know, eight, ten hours a day. It's 100 degrees out in the Spanish heat. Uh, it's it's beautiful, but you can barely concentrate on the scenery. Your feet are coming apart. Your yeah. shoulders ache. I mean, people would talk, to, would talk about your feet, but when you're walking 25 miles a day, your whole body hurts. Yeah. And so under those conditions of stress and austerity mm. and... You can meet someone and walk with them for an hour, and you feel like you've known them for a decade. All right, so how about the Shikoku pilgrimage? So the Shikoku pilgrimage is based on the life of this this monk who lived in the 8th century in Japan. He was named Kobo Daishi. And it's 88 Buddhist temples that ring Shikoku, which is the smallest of the four Japanese islands. And so this originally follows, or follows what was the supposed route of this guy on his route to enlightenment. What I learned there was that it's it's the whole thing operates under this principle this like somewhat self-deceptive principle that you're doing it because you have to mm-hmm. not because you really want to but in Spain it was so fun and I was with my friend and our feet hurt but we were just having a good time and we were meeting all these people you never really had to ask yourself am do I, am I going to be able to continue tomorrow whereas when I was in Japan and I was cold it was raining constantly. I was walking on the sides of busy roads with trucks. Nobody spoke English. I was eating from rice balls from convenience stores all the time. <laughs> that every step, and certainly every morning, I had to think, why am I continuing to do this? Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I had this email exchange with my brother at the time where I say, like, this is terrible. Why am I doing this? And he was like, you're choosing to do this. Don't lose sight of the fact that any morning you could wake up and you could come home, you know? Yeah. That, like, this is a decision that you are making to continue. So it forces you to confront the fact that so many of the things that we describe in our lives passively or because of the burden of obligation to other people in our choices that we're actually making. So the final pilgrimage you made in this book is... For the Jewish New Year, for Rosh Hashanah to Uman in the Ukraine. Yes, and you're joined by your, your brother, my brother and your and father. My dad. My... It looms large throughout the book. Right. Because I guess you had... I mean, it would be too simple to say you just had anger at him because right. he came out of the closet when you were 19. Right, exactly. Um, but you're kind of angry at him. Well, we had had just a real... I mean, we had always had a complicated relationship, but then... Yeah, he had come out, and then his story had changed a lot over the years about when he had realized he was gay and what whom he had been involved with over the years, and it was just never clear what, what was going on. Yeah. So my dad's a rabbi, and I had heard about this pilgrimage to uh, the gravesite of this great Hasidic rebbe, Rabbi Nachman, who died in uh, the early 19th century, and he had commanded his followers to come say these psalms at his grave every Jewish New Year. 
it, the pilgrimage itself was terrible. It was full of these Hasids who had absolutely no interest in us in civilian clothes, weren't nice to us, didn't treat us well. The whole place was... I mean, you were eating salami at one point. Right, we, we were. <laughs> <laughs> we did make ourselves outcasts, but that was what made it work so well, is that because we were being pushed out of what was going on, we were really just left to our own devices yeah. to say, okay, well... The Jewish New Year is supposed to be about forgiveness and redemption, and let's have some really honest conversations about yeah. forgiveness and what's going on. And then, I mean, it, it so exceeded all of my expectations. We had, the first day, we had like eight hours of conversation. So one of the things you described, maybe a, a takeaway for someone who doesn't have that specific situation, yeah. but uh, pilgrimages, you say, they complicate the distinction between a reason and an excuse. Yeah. Because there were all of these things that in my dad's life that I looked at as excuses. And then I understood in, in the process of these conversations that he was really just doing the best that he could. And that the the distinction between having a legitimate reason for doing something and inventing an excuse for doing it is a, is a lot blurrier than I think we often like to believe. Well, Gideon, thanks for sharing the wisdom you gained on your pilgrimages. And uh, just one last question. Now that you're home... Do you refuse to walk anywhere? I mean, do you just drive constantly? No, I still walk. I walked here today. Strangely, I walked here today um, and ate rice balls along the way. So, Rico, what I didn't get to discuss with Gideon was the book's many sections about his life between pilgrimages. Well pronounced. Thanks. (laughs) I got the hang of it now. Nice. Anyway, his book has all these colorful chapters about his life in Berlin, San Francisco, and his thoughts about New York. The post-liberal arts degree pilgrimage that he did there. (laughs) Yeah. Except instead of getting your sins forgiven, uh, you get a job. Yeah, maybe. A cool and wet November dawn And there are no barking sparrows Just emptiness to dwell upon All right, folks, that's the dinner party for this week. And speaking of jobs, Jackson Musker has a tough one. He is the assistant producer of the dinner party. Thanks this week to Bill Lance, Chris Holacek, Peter Clowney, Judy McAlpin, and to all of our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace. Next week, satirist Christopher Buckley gives us some advice, like not to drink this. The local liqueur in Iceland is something called Brinovan, which translates as Black Death. If you can imagine anything more mm, tasty. I definitely can. And now, before we leave you, it is time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this weekend's dinner parties. In 2009, it was hard to go anywhere without hearing electro-pop band Passion Pit. It's taken three years, but they are set to release a new album this July. Here's the first single from it called Take a Walk. This one's for you, Gideon Lewis Krauss. Bon appétit. Once again, thanks for attending the dinner party. 
I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Where the, has anyone seen Rico? Where the heck is that guy? I am Puss in Boots. Dude, what are you watching? Nothing.